Thanks for joining us once again on Core Ideas, the podcast where we delve into all things related to lake sediments. My name is Adam Jaziorski, and as always, I'm here with my good friend, Josh Steenpont. Hey, how's it going? Not too bad. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. We took a little break. It has we been We hadn't a while. intended to. It has been a while. Um, and uh, what do you want to talk about? Uh, how amazing your new audio sounds. <laughs> well, we don't know that yet. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Hopefully. Even though I can't Hopefully. hear the sound coming through. Adam did uh, get visited by the Christmas Tooth Fairy or whatever it is and uh, received some new audio gear. So he may sound a little bit different. Let us know if you can hear the difference. Yeah. Or maybe we'll have to record this all a second time. So oh, that's possible set it up too. Incorrectly. <laughs> so this will never have happened. No one will hear this uh, exchange, but no. Uh, but no, that's good. That's yeah, uh, so. If nothing else, it's it's an indication that uh, a continuation of the podcast is likely to occur because now you have fancy new toys and what's the point of letting them go to waste? Absolutely. So even if we do put things out at a snail's pace and uh, it will still we keep rolling with this for a little while longer as we enter year two, which is I think we're getting pretty close to the anniversary of like uh, the, the release. Yeah. And episode 25, another milestone. So yeah. all that together. But yeah, what to talk about? Um, any ideas? Anything in particular that's coming coming to mind on this? Oh, what is it? Our, it's been so long, I don't even remember. What is the uh, arc called at the moment? We are currently <laughs> working on topical paleolimnology. Right. Okay. Well, that's that's a good start. Uh, and so hot topics, hot topics, and paleo things that are currently being debated or discussed, published. At the forefront of many paleolimnologists' mind. What do you got? Geological time periods? <laughs> <laughs> is, that not, is that not at the forefront of most paleolimnologists' minds? Damn it, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> it's just I'm me. A biologist, right? not a geologist. Okay, okay. so keep, keep following through this. What do you want to... <laughs> you're going to have to well, walk, walk me through what you're okay. thinking. Okay, well, we had... Uh, we, I think it would be interesting to discuss the concept of the Anthropocene. And we've already talked about this a, a fair bit, actually, uh, in the past and what it is and why it might be of value to have this uh, time division uh, identifying human influence, but not really how you go about actually defining that. And there's a, an important role of paleolimnology in, well, potentially, in doing so. So I think that's something that might be of interest. Okay. All right. I'm going to confess here, as if you didn't know already, I don't know anything about geology. I just, you know, will nod. And uh, as we go here... Well, I think you probably know a little bit more than you might uh, admit or be aware of. There's a lot of geology in paleolimnology, as we've talked about. So being a good paleolimnologist, you, you get a fair bit. Maybe your classical, like structural geology, uh, could use a little work, as could mine. I mean, I'm by no means a geologist either. I just uh, end up playing one at the front of the lecture hall quite a lot, teaching in physical geography. Um, so there'll be things that, uh, you know, I may not have a good foundation in. But from a stratigraphy perspective, I think that's not a bad place to come at it. Okay. So I know enough to say that Anthropocene literally means the age of humans. Right. And so we're looking for some sort of 
way to identify when the age of humans began. Yeah, and and a way of marking uh, the geological time period to say that not only, yeah, the age of humans, but this period of global influence of uh, humans on the physical environment. Okay. So that strikes me as it would be an incredibly complicated question with lots of elements to tease apart. Um, with the two big questions that would need to be answered are not only when did this age begin, but how do you define such a thing? Yeah, you've hit it right on the head of the golden spike. That is, those are the two questions. And, and they're not uh, decided. The, this is not a finished question yet. There's been lots and lots of work for a, a surprisingly long amount of time that people have been thinking about this idea, but it isn't a, a finalized decision yet. So it is topical. It is very topical. Okay. So what exactly do you mean by golden spike? I'm assuming that's a railroad reference. It is not, uh, and, but Adam did actually think that when I first mentioned it, and I just took it for granted as this idea. So uh, I guess we need to we need to maybe take a very brief thing a uh, second to think about how we break up geological time. It's something we you know we use these terms all the time: the end Cretaceous when the dinosaurs were wiped out, and the beginning of the Cambrian explosion. But these are time divisions. Uh, and in order for them to be officially established, they need to be uh, determined by the international uh, body of geologists and other researchers who make up the uh, international stratigraphic uh, body. I'm not sure if they're a union or division or whatever they are, but a way of Epoch. dividing time. Uh, and in order to do that, there needs to be uh, one of two ways that those can be divided. They need to be either based on a very specific time period. So at 4.6 billion years ago, the earth began, that's the beginning. And then 4.4 billion years ago, some other time period began, and it's all temporally dis distributed. Or they need to be based on some sort of stratigraphic marker. And those are what are generally considered to be better and the more... Um, commonly uh, strived for way of breaking up time. But these are referred to as global boundary stratotype section and points or GSSPs, uh, or colloquially they're referred to as golden spikes. And these are literally the location on earth and the demarcation and the type of uh, material that's used to distinguish the change in geological time. And they are a golden spike that's hammered into generally the rocks because we're talking about things that have happened long, long, long ago uh, so that anyone can go and see them and do research on the material before that. So before the time period began and then that, that GSSP begins. Okay. Have you ever seen any of these golden spikes? I have are not there any, ever seen. anywhere near us? There are two uh, in Canada. They are uh, both in Newfoundland. They are the um, Fortune Head uh, formation, which is very famous. It's the division between the Precambrian and the Cambrian, so the beginning of the modern eon on Earth. Uh, and, and that's a, a location there, and it's based on fossils, which I think the majority of them are. And the other one is also in 
uh, Newfoundland, and it is, I can't remember off the top of my head what it's called, but it's the division between the uh, Cambrian and the Ordovician. Uh, yeah, I don't remember what, what the location's called. But anyway, there are okay. two. Oh, it's Greenpoint. Greenpoint yeah. in Newfoundland as well. So they oh, are okay. both uh, in Canada. And beyond that, they're all over the world. Okay. And I guess the last thing I would say just about GSSPs or Golden Spikes generally is that of all of the GSSPs that have been identified, at least that I'm aware of, the 56 or some odd uh, demarcations, and there's not one for every like tiny division of time, all but one of them are marine sediments. Uh, so they are based on marine sediment fossils uh, for changes in species. So a really important, uh, generally uh, invertebrate species will have gone extinct. And so those fossils will no longer be present anywhere on the planet. So a time marker can be set there. The only exceptions to that are those that define the Holocene. And those are in the Greenland ice cores. Okay. And the Holocene for my non-geologist friends ends with the present as of yeah yeah today to every we're second still in the this, holocene yeah as it currently stands every second that we are talking on this this recording and you're listening to it is the last moment of the holocene because it, it it's ongoing uh, it's the last just over ten thousand years since uh the end of the last glacial period okay and so then an anthropocene would not be a new stage of the Holocene. We're starting something completely different, a new epoch. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah, exactly. So subdividing time, we're still going to be in the Phanerozoic Eon, the Cenozoic Era, and the Quaternary Period, uh, as it is stated. But we will end the Holocene Epoch and begin the Anthropocene Epoch. Uh, and and it's, it's pretty much... Um, a, a, decided that that will occur, that there will be an Anthropocene. And it's just a question of when that should be identified and then what will be used as the primary marker. And there are secondary uh, auxiliary markers for all of the GSSPs. It's not like there's only one location, but there will be that one golden spike. Okay. And... So it's interesting when we're doing a little bit of reading on this, that as of July of last year, the Anthropocene itself as a term has not been formally recognized yet, but work is underway to identify, I guess it's one of those things where when the term becomes official and there's a spike in place, then the Anthropocene will be a real thing. Right now it's still yeah, very theoretical. Yeah, exactly. It's not um, necessarily the, that... That's the only way. So subdivisions can occur without there being GSSPs uh, identified for them. And there are lots of time divisions that just don't have them. But for a modern one, I think uh, the, the idea of how to even define the Anthropocene almost requires that we have an idea of at least what the marker will be. Will it be, you know, from a time period when coal combustion started. And so it's 1850 and it, they kind of go hand in hand. So identifying the time is requiring what the marker will be. And from that, we also need to have a pretty good idea of what the, uh, the archive of that, or that marker will be. Okay. If that makes this, sense. this may take a while. So I, I was stunned to find out that the Holocene 
marker was only ratified in 2008. Yeah, so there's been a real push to flush out some of these GSSPs. Some of them are, are fairly old, so the Fortune Head formation is, is not a rel- not all that new. Um, but there's been a real push to re uh, to I don't know put time and effort into identifying these markers for all of the different time periods. So a lot of them are quite young. Okay, so we've kind of covered the background on like the purpose of these golden spikes or GSSPs. Um, so what, and we're trying to, I guess there's an effort to identify one that could be used to define the Anthropocene. So what would be some of the kinds of things that are rules that are used to establish what makes a good GSSP? Yeah, so that, that's exactly it. We need to you know, and they may not all apply to the the Anthropocene because we're talking about something really, really different compared to a rock exposure from two million years or two million years, seventy million years ago. Uh, it's quite different to say something's fifty years old or seventy years old or even two hundred years old. So not all of them are necessarily going to apply. But in general, a GSSP defines the lower boundary of the geological stage. So that'll be when all of these, this specific species of conodont went extinct and then they're not there. So that's defining the lower boundary. So the GSSP would be the bo- above that. So we need to find somewhere on earth that defines 1850 or 1950 or whatever time period. It's the lower boundary. Uh, and that would be the primary marker. And historically, those have been fossils, uh, physical fossils of marine organisms, because they're plentiful, they're you know, well-preserved in rock formations, etc. But there always are secondary markers, uh, chemical, geomagnetic, um, isotopic, whatever those may be. Uh, really critical, and one maybe that paleo is important was we get into talking about is going to be dating that. They need to be able to be radiometrically dated. And for old rock formations, that could be quite challenging. For younger sediments, that might not be so, so hard. Um, so that's a good one that we have there. That's an interesting one, though, because we talk, we've talked a fair bit about dating in the last uh, couple of episodes ago. But um, I guess we'll get in shortly into when this marker might be. But if you're talking about something, let's say, in the last couple hundred years – the choice of a radioisotope, um, if you want to date something only 200 years ago and you go into mm-hmm. lead 210, eventually your chosen radioisotope may no longer be valid. Yeah, absolutely. And I think from a lake perspective, then laminations probably, well, from any of these perspectives, laminations are, are often very important because they not just dated uh, somewhat accurately, they need to be almost dated to the year. Uh, and because of that, laminated records from all of the different materials are not necessarily required, but they are very attractive. Uh, Then the other one is that there needs to be some sort of, uh, there needs to be a fair amount of material. Uh, There need to be relatively thick deposits, you know, a single microscopic laminate, maybe not going to be all that useful. Uh, They need to, there's a goal that there should be some sort of regional correlation to materials of the same age. So broadly, you should see similar types of changes at all different locations. 
Um, and those are the, and, and the last one, uh, should be, so the, I guess link to that one is that, uh, global and or regional drivers should be really important for the changes that you're seeing. It shouldn't be really localized effects on that area. And lastly, they should be free to access and you accessible to do research at. How accessible? Well, yeah. So, uh, historically, again, when there are rock exposures, that that's straightforward. If you're talking about the Greenland ice core, which is where, uh, you know, the North grip, ice core, which is where the Holocene is, you can go there, but not that easily. Okay. <laughs> so so it, it theoretically just has to be, accessible as yeah, opposed exactly. to is that at the bottom not, of the Marianas Trench or something? Well, not even at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. I think if you could make an argument that that would, would be appropriate, but not um, in a country where, for example, it's incredibly challenging to access that area for uh, political reasons or things like that. All right. So ha having covered what would be required to identify one of these spikes, bring it back to the Anthropocene. So the next question is um, where that might be, um, or I guess it's both. You have the totally intrinsically connected debates of when the spike would take place and what to use. And even, you know, spending a couple minutes thinking about these kind of things, uh, you can come up with a couple of different potential ones. Are we talking about the Anthropocene as the rise of humanity and tying it to like the extinction of like the megafauna in caveman times? Mm -hmm. Talking the onset of the industrial period a couple hundred years ago, the dawn of the nuclear age, even just like in the last 70 years, like there's a whole bunch of. I guess, candidate times or starting points yep. that would have their whole series of unique challenges associated with them. So where, where are we on that? Yeah, so that's a, that, I think that's one of the reasons it's taken so long to come up with this because the, the term Anthropocene is not, not all that young, um, but a real concentrated, concerted effort to define it is, is newer. And there was a lot of debate as to what that would be. So if you pick the rise of humanity and the extinction of the megafauna, then we should wipe out the Holocene because that would be pre-Holocene. So there never would have been a Holocene. So that, I think, while that might make some sort of logical sense uh, from a stratigraphic perspective, probably isn't the best choice. And there's arguments about the global sort of nature of that. Is there marine impacts? And, and the timing of that is quite challenging. The onset of the Industrial Revolution versus the more modern sort of uh, globalization time period, I think, is was the real debate. Should it be 1850 when you can find soot particles in all different locations? Uh, or should it be the age of nuclear uh, ex expansion, uh, whatever, the nuclear age on the planet? Uh, and... Fortunately, uh, fortunate for us, we don't have to decide that. Uh, it's been narrowed down that the mid-20th century, so that nuclear age, is the the one that satisfies those uh, those requirements best for the Anthropocene. Okay, so then does that mean that the, the marker type would be man-made radioisotopes, basically? Is that basically uh, where we're at? Uh, not necessarily man-made. So there are... So 
in the show notes if if you're interested in what some of these potential markers are. Uh, you can we'll, we'll put a link up to uh, to what some of those are. So I guess we should maybe do we want to talk about markers or we want to talk about environments because some things are not going to be found potential like archives. I mean of the spike because uh, not all of them are going to be found in all different locations. Um, so, and that's, I think that's part of the thing. They go hand in hand with one another. So, uh, changes in black carbon, for example, are really commonly found in ice records. We know that really well. They're found pretty well in lake environments, but they may not be incorporated into bivalve records or, uh, you know, the, I'm not sure people may be familiar with the term speleotherm. So that's a, um, calcareous, uh, like a stalagmite, like uh, annually laminated calcareous rock materials, so generally stalagmites for in cave environments. I don't know that there'd be any reason for, even though those are well laminated, they're found all over the place, they're pretty uh, large amounts of material, but they wouldn't incorporate black carbon into them. They would be different uh, markers. So there is this interplay of choosing both your marker and your archive. Okay. So, so what do we have some candidates? I guess that'll be the next uh, question. Like how far along on, on this decision-making process are we're at the, it's been not narrowed down to the mid 20th century. Yep. Yeah. So, um, I think it makes sense to kind of talk about them together a little bit. So there, the problem is there are too many markers. Uh, I, I believe they've narrowed it down further than the, the, best paper that I could find that had 18, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but that are broken down into seven different categories, um, three of which are related to the marine environment. So I said all of the markers except for the Holocene are marine. Uh, and so from a modern Anthropocene perspective, uh, examples could be marine corals and bivalves. So actually using coral materials because those are uh, laminated, they, they build growth rings. You could use anoxic marine sediments, which just like lakes, which we'll talk about primarily because this is a paleolimnology podcast. Or we could use deltas and estuarian environments because they build up quite quickly. They can also be relatively anoxic, even though they're not the deep kind of ocean basins. So those are all related to the marine environment. And, and broadly, they would be kind of similar, right? And, and not unlike lake environments, which we'll talk about most. So maybe we'll skip over lakes because we'll come back to that. Uh, but all of those are going to have material incorporated from the marine or from the aquatic environment, but also from the catchment. They're going to incorporate isotopic records of fallout and those sorts of things. So they're going to be kind of similar in some ways, except for corals are biological, so they may not incorporate all of those things. We have lakes. We can also talk about peatlands. Uh, we haven't really thought too much about peatlands as a paleolimnological archive, but it is commonly used as one. mentioned peatlands yet. Yeah, which is funny, eh? That even though uh, people we know have have worked quite quite uh, extensively on using peat deposits as sedimentary records, uh, so ombotrophic bogs. So that's bogs that are only getting material from the atmosphere are great archives of. Uh, all sorts of conditions and, and including things that might be used as uh, markers for the for the Anthropocene. I've already mentioned ice records a couple times and and that's a, another potential option for continuing on from the Holocene 
uh, spike and using it for the Anthropocene as well, all the same reasons. We talked about speleotherms, so uh, stalagmites, things that build up in caves. And then tree rings are the other possible example. Uh, so dendrochronological records. And all of those things have the, the kind of advantages of being archives that build up and incorporating a bunch of different indicators, including some that might be used for dating. A lot of them are annually laminated or can be, uh, just based on the nat nature of them as archives. Uh, and yeah, so those are the potential types of environments from different locations that are being identified. And from our interest, I guess lakes are the one we probably want to continue thinking a little bit about. Because as an example of what makes a good GSSP, lakes are, are pretty good for many of those things and, and might be a really strong candidate for what to use in the end. And this is a paleolimnology podcast. So. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. That's, that's why we're talking about this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. So of the, of the, so just going on this paper, of the 18 um, candidates, and I think it has been knocked down a little bit, five of them are, are lake environments. So, so that's a, a good chance, almost a, a one-third chance that whatever ends up being the GSSP for the Anthropocene will be a lake environment. So it fits well into our paleolimnology podcast. Okay. And interestingly... Uh one of said candidates is a lake that we've mentioned on this podcast before. A couple times, I think, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, Crawford Lake in Ontario, um, which I have never been to. You've been to it, though, right? Is that a couple times, yeah. I remember? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and this is the one, I think the first time we talked about, uh, Jenny mentioned it because she grew up not far from there and, and spent quite a bit of time visiting the conservation area that's around it. Um, yeah, so that's a Merrimectic Lake, uh, which gets around that question that you mentioned, or your question you mentioned, Adam, about uh, relative dating versus absolute dating, and, and it has annual laminations that date back uh, certainly earlier than this to like 1860 or something like that, uh, and then is dated older than that. There's quite a bit of sediment there, so that answers that question right away. Uh, and then it has a, a stratigraphic record with all sorts of, oh, you know, all the things we would normally talk about in paleolimnology. Diatom records have been published there, uh, records of uh, airborne contamination, lead, radionuclides from uh, bomb testing. There's a, everything that you would find in a lake sediment, in theory, could be found from the Crawford Lake record. And, and you could use a number of those uh, as a way of identifying that 1950 time period yeah because i guess to even be make it onto this candidate list must be intensively studied inside out backwards and forwards to make it onto a list like this sure yeah it's not going to just pick any lake and say oh, let's use that <laughs> one uh <laughs> versus one that has been cored many times and had all sorts of different things and you know has repeated uh, reproducible varv records we know that those work really well with very few emissions which makes it a good candidate uh, based on that. It, really, the only things that make a lake like that a relatively poor GSSP candidate is that sedimentation rates are probably quite low uh, in lake environments compared to, say, a delta uh, location or some of the, the biological uh, things might be higher. Uh, lakes can be very localized in terms of their 
processes. So local catchment processes may be more important than regional or global drivers. So you'd need to think about the lake really well. And a, a Merrimictic Lake, like Merrimictic Lake, might be a good choice for that. Uh, and the fact that GSSPs have never been done in a lake before. You know, there there is no precedent for them being uh, being golden spikes. Oh, and I and I guess maybe some of the markers that you might use uh, are not present necessarily. Would this mean that the spike you could theoretically go and visit would actually be hammered into the bottom of the lake? I know I don't think they would do that. Uh, <laughs> kind of like defeats the purpose of in a couple of years. It's just covered up and then you have to sure. dig it out to see it yeah exactly uh not to mention the the we we know that how soupy lake sediments can be and it would just completely obliterate what was a stratigraphic record to define an entire geological epoch so yeah probably not more likely be on a plaque next small to the, price next to, to the lake there's a nice boardwalk that goes around most of the lake that you can walk that's quite nice so there'd be a great great number of places it would be very easily accessible to uh people who wanted to research it or to visit it, maybe not research it, um, but visit it because uh, it's near an international airport. And, and then I guess imagine it would become a lot more restrictive to actually get into the lake. Well, they're, they already Because your are. worry would be that it'd be like, this is a high, highly important record. So you wouldn't want people coring it all willy-nilly to take a bit of the Anthropocene home with them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, they already are quite um, cognizant of the fact that you can only take so many sediment cores from a lake before um, the the record is disturbed too much. Uh, so it's not easy to get a core from there if you wanted to do research on it even now without it being the global spike for a time period or time epoch. Um, and and I, can, I can imagine you're right that that would just get more and more uh, difficult because it really would be so valuable. Okay, but, but, but beyond that, I think it's a good it's a good candidate for for a lot of those regions and and would be really cool. It'd be amazing to be able to go and see one. I would I would very quickly uh, find myself there again. But there are other candidate lakes on the list, and I guess we've got a bit of a bias rooting for Crawford Lake because we can almost we can see it from our houses. Theoretically, you know, relatively speaking, compared to some of the other ones, and we um, know some of the people who have worked on. So Francine McCarthy at Brock, um, who is on the uh, Anthropocene Working Group, um, that's working to define that uh, time period broadly, uh, has done lots of research. And Mike Pizarek, who obviously I know really well, uh, Tim Patterson from Carlton, they're the ones who are kind of putting this lake forward as as a candidate. So. We have a, a personal connection there. In addition to Raw Raw Canada, should be the the third our third spike. But in terms of other lakes, uh, I mean, there could be lots of candidates, right? Like if you think about what those um, what those requirements are, they're not that significant. Well studied lakes with really good chronologies that are easy to access. I mean, can think of many many for that. Okay. But there are some specific candidates and just looking down this list, can, Canadian competition is in Scotland and Sweden and China and Hawaii. Hawaii. Oh, that I'd probably, 
Probably go and visit that spike too. That sounds great. Ra ra Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I change, can I change my vote? I don't get one, but uh, okay. All right. So this is uh, it's pretty interesting. So like this was a novel topic for me, but seeing how important paleolimnology theoretically is to it. Um, so this is kind of a uh, incredibly topical issue that's going on right now. And uh, yeah. And if you think about like the, the pros and cons for some of the other ones, it, it's not surprising that many of them are lakes. Uh, and I would not be surprised at all if a lake ended up being chosen. So just to think about some of the others, like marine records obviously historically have been used, but they build up quite slowly uh, compared to even lake environments in a lot of cases. And there's a uh, lag, so a, like a deep ocean basin, it takes a long time for material to settle down to that. Especially if we're talking about something that on the last 50 years, like in particular, this is the one where that matters the most. Exactly. Yeah, that, that wouldn't matter for any other time period. But for these ones, that is a, a critical component. Uh, biological records are, are tricky, right? Because you have this one tree that dates the Holocene or dates the Anthropocene, sorry. Uh, and that species is affected by a blight. It wouldn't be like a one tree. It would be a record of trees. But you can see that there would be a potential to lose those records even more so than the lake sediments. Corals would be the same, especially in the rapidly changing climate uh, that we find ourselves in so much so that we have to define a time period. Uh, so, the, you know, and some of the others, the ice cores are melting or the ice caps are melting rather and so they can't be guaranteed to be long-term. Like the stratigraphers are, are a careful bunch uh, and they definitely think about these kind of contingencies. So I won't be too surprised if uh, a lake ends up being the choice. Yeah, even if it eventually fills in? Even if it eventually fills in, yeah. Because, it, you know, it fills into the sediments are still there. Eventually it becomes an exposure uh, and then you can actually hammer the spike into it. Um, so, yeah. I think it's quite an interesting topic. Obviously, I've talked on probably more on this episode than I think any episode I have uh, that we've done so far. I tend to often fill in more color commentary than uh, than lead it, but no, it's it's an interesting one to think about from a bunch of different angles, and and a lot of them link into the paleo stuff that we've been talking about. Just the idea of global human impact, the need for good time markers broadly. Uh, just how stratigraphy sort of works and we take for granted all of these time divisions but they're only they only exist we only know you know behind me while i'm sitting here is little books from the little guy on dinosaurs and they talk about all these time periods and stuff they all, we only know they're there because people have studied these fossils and and just because most of them are really really old doesn't mean it's not actively occurring so i find this a, a fascinating topic for that reason yeah, we've mentioned before, like how pivotal, like a general standardization can be as long as everybody's on board. Um, and so, you know, right now, even just in the beginning of our conversation, like the Anthropocene is a fairly, at least to me, was a fairly ephemeral term that could be interpreted a couple different ways. But once it's officially done, this is the Anthropocene, then all of a sudden that allows a lot of future research to like, you know, the spike is there, we'll build out from there. We know exactly what the word means. And um, it 
uh, simplifies a lot of stuff going forward. Yeah, exactly. And for most people, it won't really make that big of a difference in their day-to-day existence. So your uh, life didn't change when the Holocene was finally ratified? Uh, not not that I was aware of at the time. No. Okay. Um, now, obviously, <laughs> I think about it much more. Uh, but, you know, it, it'll just be a term, right? Most people aren't familiar with the term Holocene, so Anthropocene won't seem that different. But there is this global kind of awareness of, of our impact on the planet more so than people think think back to the last glacial most people heard about that in school and and know that glacial periods come and go on the planet but this is something that's different it's this it's the only time period that will be driven by a single species and its dominance on the planet um even though we demark the cambrian by these fossils doesn't mean they were they caused that to happen they're just an indicator they're an index of that time period but this is different uh and and hopefully that that gives people uh well maybe it's always preaching to the converted and the people that already are aware of it already know of all the things going on but it, it can't hurt yeah well i, I no i i can't imagine this won't be a big deal when it's officially defined it'll definitely make you know, break into the news cycle for that day that we are now worldwide, you know, that we are now have officially marked the age of humans and it began 1945 or, mm-hmm. or, or whenever it is eventually specifically decided upon. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, it's like textbooks at every level need to be updated, basically. Yeah, exactly. Like all the Quite way literally. down to, you know, the, uh, Baby's first book of dinosaurs. Yep. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I was, I, there's actually one back there completely unrelated to this, but that was mine when I was a kid and we're just flipping through it. And, and it's, it's quite different in 30 some odd years. And, uh, not necessarily with the time periods that are defined, but a lot of the other things are quite different. Dinosaurs are feathery now. Well, yeah, the, the feathery dinosaurs being one, but I think even the, uh, the, the definition of the oldest rocks so pre dinosaurs, when they're talking about, you know, ancient, ancient earth history is a little bit, we've pushed that back a little bit than we, they knew at that time. So seeing it change on the other end of the spectrum is going to happen too. Very cool. No, um, interesting topic and, uh, not something I'd have looked, looked into under my own. Yeah, this one came about when when we were coming up with topics and we're like, what are we going to talk about next? Like, which one would you pick? And then Josh just launched into a rant about or a uh, a long soliloquy about why we should we should talk about defining the Anthropocene. So, no, absolutely, you can pick the next topic. Oh well, (laughs) I'm I'm quite happy to learn new things. Oh, and me too. Like I, I mean. Some of these these details only picked up like really looking into it now because we you know we cover it fairly broadly in a lot of teaching for example so uh, but the details I think are interesting too so it's nice to get into them. All right, so uh, well, re- well, thank you for listening, um, and as always, we kind of close up with letting you know how to contact us. Um, our Twitter handle is at Core Ideas Paleo. Um, you can send us longer form uh, questions or comments or rants about our misrepresentation of geological information to coreideaspodcast at gmail.com. 
And we should have a competition for who has visited the most Golden Spikes. <laughs> oh, uh, I will be leading the bottom of the pack with zero. <clears throat> yeah, me too. And then uh, show notes. Um, and all our past episodes are easily found at, our, at their show website at coreideas.ajazorski.ca. Um, but really, the easiest way to get in touch with us is Twitter. And there are links to everything that you need from there. That's it. But that's it. Until next time, thank you for listening. And uh, stay safe out there. And Happy New Year to everyone. Yep. Thanks. And we'll see you soon.